but it's so good. Uh, wherever you are to be gathered together as a church, as a family, uh, for those of you who may not know who I am or tuning in maybe for the first time to the Vine, my name is James, um, one of the pastors here, uh, looking over a lot of the kid things, next generation kids and youth. And uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things that's a little bit <laughs> unusual, at least on this side of things, is that I'm talking to an empty room. And so it's hard to be knowing how to, uh, what is engaging and what's not engaging. One of the things that I hope that this produces in us as a church, as silly as this may seem, is just that we affirm uh, just through our words, like saying, yes, amen, when we all gather back together, Lord willing, that we just become a church that verbalizes that, hey, hey, I'm with you, preacher. So, um, uh, because this is just, this is different and unusual. Um, but hey, if you have a Bible or access to a Bible on your phone, um, go ahead and grab it. We're going to um, be in our Bibles quite a bit today. Um, flipping through various portions of Old Testament scripture, uh, as well as being in Matthew as a church. We continue our journey through Matthew um, and seeing what uh, God has for us there. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, and as you do so, um, as we've seen, Matthew has just wonderfully uh, woven together his narrative in Matthew revealing to his audience, which if we remember is a Jewish audience, uh, that Jesus is the promised king, that he is the Jewish nation's uh, Messiah. And, and, and Matthew, in the first 11 chapters, we've seen he's clearly made this point. And today, as we turn into chapter 12 of Matthew, we're going to come to a turning point. A turning point of the mounting unbelief by the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus's identity. You see, up until this point in Matthew, there's been very few disputes between Jesus and the religious leaders. There, there, there's the time in, in chapter 5 where Jesus, he warns that the righteousness must exceed that of, of the Pharisees. And in return, we, we saw that the religious leaders question Jesus' choice of companionship, that, that he hangs out with sinners and, and tax collectors. And, and, we, and we did see that after Jesus forgave in chapter 9 the, the, the sins of the lame man, that the religious leaders, like, amongst themselves silently accused Jesus of blasphemy. But it was silent. But, and there has yet to be like this overt hostility towards Jesus from the religious leaders. But all this changes in chapter 12. Jump down with me to verse 14 of chapter 12. Jesus, in, in the narrative that we'll get to here in just a second, it says this in verse 14 of chapter 12. It says, the Pharisees went out, or they go out, and conspire against Jesus how to destroy him. And, and this is a, a milestone chapter. This is the, the beginning of a storm that ultimately leads to the cross. Like, how do these silent mutterings of the religious leaders back just in chapter 9 turn so quickly into anger, into rage, into a hatred that actually plots how to murder Jesus? Well, in short, Jesus is going to disrupt the cornerstone of traditional Judaism. 
And he's going to assert himself as the cornerstone. Jesus disrupts the cornerstone of traditional Judaism and asserts himself as the cornerstone. And so we're going to work our, our way through the text together. So turn with me into verse 1 of Matthew 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So here we have it. Jesus and his disciples, they're on a stroll. They get hungry, and they snack on some grain, right? Was this wrong? Is this what causes the rage? No. It's, it's perfectly permissible under Old Testament law to pluck the grain here as the disciples did. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, You may go to your neighbor's field. You may pluck the ears of grain with your hand. In fact, they were commanded not to uh, harvest all of the grain, but to leave some. For this very purpose. You see, this action of plucking the grain out of a stranger's field, this is not the issue. The issue was that this action was done on the Sabbath. Verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You see, this is a a Sabbath-keeping issue. And this is a big deal. And to us now, I know that this does not sound like a big deal. And we need to climb into the shoes of a first century Jew to gain the understanding of why keeping the Sabbath was such a big deal. So, so hang with me for a few moments, because we're going to journey through the Old Testament to the present in our text for just a couple minutes. So if you have a Bible, it'll be handy to have with you, but I'll read the scripture as well. But the word Sabbath, it first appears in scripture in Exodus 16. The story that the Israelites, they flee from Egypt, right? They cross over the Red Sea. And, and, and God says this to Moses right after these events. He says, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And in a short time, God will deliver the Ten Commandments, the fourth being this in Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Let me get there. The fourth commandment, the remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. To, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And later on in Exodus 31, just a few um, pages over, God will actually qualify the Sabbath, not just as a commandment to be kept but as a sign between himself and Israel. In Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, we have this. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You see, other religions would have practiced the same animal sacrifices, temple worship, or even circumcision. But the Sabbath was different. It set the Jewish nation nation apart from all the nations. It was a, a sign that God establishes here between himself and the Jews. And not only was the Sabbath a sign, a covenantal relationship between God and Israel, the Sabbath served as God's provision. As he says, that for his people to cease from labor and to know him, to enjoy him. It's ultimately a foreshadowing of the promised blessing of rest. Yet unfortunately, time and time and time again as we go through the Old Testament, we see that the Jewish nation fails to know God in this way. One example is in Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, starting in verse 12. This is God saying, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths, talking to the Jewish nations. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But what did they do? The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned, for their heart went after their idols. And it's this failure, this this chasing after idolatry and, and not keeping the Sabbath that results in Israel's exile and ruin. Which, which leads us to a plea from Nehemiah when we get to that portion of history during the rebuilding of Jerusalem where he pleads for faithful Sabbath keeping. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13 starting in verse 15. In those days, this is Nehemiah talking, in those days I saw in Israel people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And so I confronted, I, Nehemiah, I confronted the nobles of Judea and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaming the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it's around this time of Nehemiah, which is four centuries before Christ, that this Pharisaic Judaism emerges. And it's within this Pharisaic Judaism that it's 100% about upholding Old Testament law meaning they interpret the law and build a system of rules to keep the law pure. And top of that list of utmost importance is keeping the Sabbath. And it's interesting because despite God's unique and special designation that he places on the Sabbath as a sign between himself and Israel, there's really minimal instruction for how to keep the Sabbath. And so as we come into our text, 
text today, the prevailing rabbinic law concerning the Sabbath, it generated a list of 39 specific categories that, of labor that's prohibited on the Sabbath. Activities such as sowing and plowing and reaping and threshing and kneading and baking and so on, these are activities that are prohibited on the Sabbath. And it's not that it's just these 39 categories of prohibited labor, because over time, over these four centuries, it delved further to prohibit anything that resembled a prohibited act or could be confused by it. Meaning, rabbinic law prohibited such things as, as climbing a tree. You could not climb a tree on the Sabbath because it may result in breaking a stick or tearing a leaf, which could be construed as reaping, and reaping is the separating of a growing plant from its source. Or, or you, you could not add fresh water to a vase of flowers. That was prohibited on the Sabbath. Because it could be considered sowing, which is an activity that causes plant growth. And, and you could not even cut your hair or your nails. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath because it could be construed as shearing. And some of you, that may be true today as well. And catch this. The law permitted that women could wear a hair clip in their hair. However, if she at all, during the Sabbath, carried it in her hand, if it had fallen out and puts it in her hand, that's considered labor because she's carrying something. So if she wears a hair clip, she had to put it on before the Sabbath because putting it on was, of course, labor. <laughs> Literally, there's hundreds of these prohibitions placed upon Jews for how to keep the Sabbath at this time. In fact, just a few decades, a few decades before Jesus' birth, the Romans successfully laid siege to Jerusalem unhindered by any defender because they attacked on the Sabbath. Meaning the Jews willingly allowed themselves to suffer rather than break the Sabbath. So as we come back to Matthew 12, I say all of that exercising our Bible-flipping skills to say this, keeping the Sabbath is a big deal. It's of utmost importance. And honestly, on one hand, given the significance of the Sabbath, the Pharisees, they, they rightly upheld, they rightly fought to uphold the sacredness of the Sabbath. But on the other hand, the Pharisees added into the Sabbath so many rules that instead of the Sabbath being a day of rest, it was a day of incredible burden. So let's go back to our, our text in Matthew 12. Let's pick it up again in verse 2. In verse 2, we see, right, the Pharisees see what the disciples are doing, and they say, hey, look, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What is not lawful here? We need to be clear what the disciples are doing. It's not breaking Old Testament law. What they're doing is they're breaking the prevailing rabbinic law of this time. For 
plucking the heads of grain as the disciples were, were doing was, was considered reaping. And as we know, reaping was one of the 39 prohibited forms of labor on the Sabbath. And it's a punishable offense. So how does Jesus respond to this? I love it. He appeals back to Scripture to reveal the Pharisees' gross inconsistency in which they interpret God's law. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus says this. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. You see, Jesus references here to a time in David's life where he was basically an outlaw. He's on the run from King Saul, and David's hungry. And this is a, a story that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. David comes into a town that's called Nob. He enters the temple, and he deceives the priest. He lies to the priest. It's a very bizarre conversation. Look it up. And he asks for food, and the priest, having only this, this bread of the presence, gives these loaves to David. And these, these loaves were a special bread for a specific reserved aspect of Jewish worship. Twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And every Sabbath, the priest would, br would bake these twelve loaves and place them in the temple. And at the end of the week, the bread would be removed and replaced with twelve new loaves. And here's what's important to know, that these removed loaves of bread were only to be eaten by priests. Yet David eats this bread. David eats the bread meant only for the priests to eat. So we ask ourselves, okay, Jesus, how does this apply to the situation here with the disciples? Well, I think he's cleverly revealed some inconsistencies of how the Pharisees interpret Scripture. One, a priest, a fellow religious leader, permits a direct violation of Old Testament law. And David, as esteemed as he is in Jewish tradition and history, he breaks Old Testament law, yet is without condemnation. Two, inconsistencies that fly right at the face of the Pharisees. For, for how could they justify David's wrongful act, breaking Old Testament law, yet condemn Jesus' disciples who had not even broken Old Testament law? Do, do you get what Jesus is saying? That the very rigidity of the Pharisaical interpretation of the law was not in accord with the, the Scripture itself, and they could not explain by Scripture the incident with David. <laughs> Jesus is crazy clever. He's revealing the Pharisees' inconsistent interpretation of Old Testament law. And next, he's going to clear his disciples of wrongdoing. Look with me in verse 5. Matthew chapter 12, verse 5 says, Jesus says, Or have you not read... Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
meaning every week the priests broke the Sabbath. Since temple worship, it required their labor. They had to bake this bread. They had to perform the animal sacrifices. So how come the priests could labor on the Sabbath? How were they deemed guiltless? Well, it's because they're working in the temple, right? And it was accepted that the temple was greater than the Sabbath. So, so how does Jesus apply this to his disciples? Well, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you, I tell you, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. You know, with, with this statement, Jesus like is literally you see, the temple, it represents the very presence of God. Jesus asserts that there is one, he's speaking of himself, that is greater than the temple. Meaning that the priests, if, if they are deemed innocent because the temple is greater than the Sabbath, then Jesus' disciples are innocent for he is greater than the temple. Or, or we could say it this way, if the authority of the temple shields a, a priest from guilt then by Jesus' authority, his disciples are shielded from guilt. Are you sensing why Jesus just dropped the mic? Well, Jesus isn't done. He's going to pick back up the mic and directly call out the Pharisees' hypocrisy and hollow hearts. Verse 7. Jesus says this, and if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. I desire mercy, Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Keep in mind our, our trek through the Old Testament. Remember Israel's continual failure to keep God's law, to keep the Sabbath, how they chased after idolatry rather than honoring God's Sabbath. And out of this mess emerges pharisaical law. And it's this hyper crazy pursuit that they have of keeping the Sabbath sacred that the Pharisees, in time, they blind themselves from the very purpose of the Sabbath, which is to know and enjoy God. They're so blinded that they cannot even see that God is standing right in front of them. Because the keeping the Sabbath had become their God. You see, instead of ceasing labor to worship the Lord of the Sabbath, they made much labor. They made much labor to worship the Sabbath of the Lord. And so Jesus rightfully asserts in verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus just dropped the mic. Jesus is saying, hey, hey, I'm not just greater than King David. No, no. I am the maker. I am the owner. I am the rule giver of the Sabbath. It is mine. You see, Jesus has drawn a line. The storm that will lead to the cross is now set into motion. Because by claiming to have instituted the Sabbath, Jesus places his authority over all Old Testament law. 
fully suggesting that it's through him that Israel will find the promised blessing of rest. Friends, it's no accident that Matthew places this narrative immediately after chapter 11, where we heard Jesus' invitation to come and to find rest in him. You see, one's relationship with God, it's never about mere outward traditions or rituals like that of keeping the Sabbath. Rather, one's relationship with God has everything to do with one's heart. A heart that that loves God. A heart that treasures and trusts God. For the pharisaical life, this was nothing more than than an outward mockery of a hollow heart. They were tenaciously clinging to empty religious practices as if the Sabbath-keeping could take place of God himself. Sure, they kept the Sabbath, but they failed to know and enjoy God, the very reason for the Sabbath. And so to illustrate this blindness, this, the, their, their hollow hearts and their empty form of religion, Jesus moves from this, this cornfield or whatever field this is, and he enters into their synagogue. Instead of fleeing the rage that he is inciting, he enters into the fray. We pick it up in Matthew verse, chapter 12, verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they may accuse Jesus? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then... Uh, then he said to the man, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? This is Jesus' question. Then he says to the man in verse 13, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So we're still on the Sabbath as Jesus goes into the synagogue, into the temple. And Jesus comes to this man who has no use of one of his hands, which if we understand in this time, in this, cult, this time of air, like it's an agricultural society. So if you can't use one of your hands, you're going to be hard. You're going to be hard up for learning or how, how to live. You're, you're not going to be able to make a living very easily. And so by healing this man, as accounted here, as Jesus heals this man, Jesus illustrates the total blindness of the Pharisee's heart. For he says, consider what if Pharisees, hey, what if one of your sheep, Jesus says, what if one of your sheep falls into a pit? You'd get it out, right? And they would even get it out on the Sabbath, which would be prohibited labor. But they would do it. So how much more value is human life compared to a sheep? And this is Jesus' point. What value is the outward sign? the keeping of a Sabbath? What values the outward sign when the inward reality is gone? What value is the outward sign when the inward reality is gone? Keeping the Sabbath, hear me, keeping the Sabbath was a good thing. 
God commanded them to do so. But it consumed the Pharisee. It became in time an outward obedience that had no heart value attached. And consequently, they, they grossly missed the heart of God. They were blinded to the, the very desperate and real need of this man before them who needed help. They were blinded and knowing and enjoying the love and mercy and justice of God. What value is there in any outward sign if the inward reality is gone? Well, before we cast judgment on the, the air of these, these Pharisees, we've we got to turn to ourselves and ask the same question. In what ways am I just like these Pharisees? I want you to remember back to your childhood, or, or, or if you're a parent, you'll pick up on this right away. But when I tell Lucy, my four-year-old, to perhaps you know, help clean up after dinner or some other chore around the house, there's typically two responses that she will give me. She'll say, hey, Dad, sure, I'd love to. Uh, and th- that's the majority of the time. She's, she's a very obedient girl, and I'm thankful for that. But there are times where I say, hey, Lucy, I'd like you to help me do this, where it's uh, the reaction, the response of, but Dad, I, but, but, but Dad, I, I can't, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, as we, you know, dialogue on that. In time, there will be obedience, and, and oftentimes it's then the, the overdramatic, like, movements of clearing the table, of the plodding of the feet, like, hey, I'm doing it, but I'm not happy about doing it. You know, even though her second response is, is outwardly obedient, it's what I asked for, it's this outward obedience, it does not match an inner reality of a heart that I desire as her father. It's almost as if it's better if she didn't do it at all, right? What value is the outward obedience if the inward reality is missing? You know, as I pondered this text this week, I came just to think that this text has little to nothing to do with the Sabbath and everything to do with our hearts. Some of you know this piece of my story. Some of you do not. But for for 10 years of my life, from my late teens to my late 20s, I, I was a, a person who consistently gave over to much sexual sin. And it was an incredibly large part of my life. And although a, a, a significant portion of my life, it was completely hidden from all those around me. You know, on, on the outside, I, I had the image of an A-plus Christian. I, I faithfully attended church. I was a student leader in my college ministry crew. I regularly was declaring and demonstrating who Jesus was to those around me. I, I even went to seminary. And, and sure, I, I actually had moments where I would confess to others a limited, a small picture of my internal temptations. A small, a small dose but outwardly and very publicly, I portrayed an image of one who's fighting for purity. I'm meeting regularly with an accountability partner. I'm installing every internet filter. I'm publicly limiting maybe some TV or entertainment intake. 
Yet inwardly, I hid a terrible truth of my destructive addictions. You see, if one could have looked into my heart, they would have discovered a heart far from God. Outwardly, my life was in perfect order. But inwardly, my heart was in chaos. And I, and I lived in this chaos for 10 years. And here's the crazy thing. Although what I knew I did in secret was sinful and wrong, I had literally convinced myself that through behavior modification, I could keep a good relationship with God. That if I prayed longer, if I memorized more scripture, if I gave more time to those in need, I tenaciously clung to external practices of righteousness as if they could take the place of my relationship with God himself. Friends, that is a definition of an empty religion. And this is exactly what Jesus calls out in the life of the Pharisees. On the, on the outside, yeah, I'm checking all the boxes. All the right boxes are being checked. But on the inside, it's a hollow heart far from God. And when we cling to these external practices and righteousness, what I found, I blinded myself to the truth of God's incredible love and compassion and mercy and justice that is met at the cross through his finished provision. I vividly, vividly remember the specific time and place of the man God used to show me his truth. As he sat me down, at a kitchen table and looked deep into my eyes and said, hey, James, how can you be a Christian if your inside reality does not match, out, match up with your outward? How can you be a Christian if your inner heart fails to measure up to your outward reality? And that's stung. Praise God for his mercy. I'm not perfect in this area, but I'm not the man that I used to be by God's grace. Friends, here's what I've come to think, that it's far easier to obey a set of rules that maybe we've established or others have established for us than to just evaluate our own heart. It's far easier to obey rules than to evaluate our own hearts. And this is a dangerous way to approach God, though, because we deceive ourselves that we can build some sort of system to work our way into heaven without need for God. Instead of focusing on the grace and mercy of Jesus for our sins, where do we focus? We focus on following rules that will somehow save us. Rules that we set up for ourselves, much like the Pharisees are doing here with the Sabbath. And So this morning, I, I encourage you to Consider the ways that you approach God and just simply ask, why am I doing these things? Why am I doing these things? Is it just to check a box to prove that I've done something good? Or is it that you truly desire to know and enjoy God more? As you read your Bible, a good thing are you reading to fulfill a, a determined chapter or verse requirement that you've established and set? Or are you reading your Bible to know and treasure God more? As you pray, a good thing, are you praying to fulfill just a specific time requirement, constantly looking at your clock to see if you've, you've hit it? 
Or are you praying to know and treasure God more? As you give money or, or, or time to those in need or to the church, are you, are you merely looking to promote an acceptable image that you've established as being ideal? Or are you giving because you want to know and treasure God more? Why are you doing these things? Why are you doing these things? You see, without guarding our hearts as Christians, each one of us can so easily become a works-based Christian. And for those of us who lean uh, heavy into this ditch of self-imposed rules, stop. Stop following rules for the sake of following rules. Because you're living like the Pharisee. You're living under a burden that Jesus does not intend for you to live. As we close today, you know what I find is that Jesus could have used any number of, of uh, rabbinic laws to make his point here in the text, but he didn't. He came right after the pinnacle of Jewish law, the Sabbath. And I, I think he did so to reveal the pinnacle of our gospel hope. That the burden for all of our striving, for all of our toiling to achieve, to prove, to accomplish, all of that is over. Our rest, our salvation, our hope, our peace is in Jesus. And Jesus says as much as he finishes our text in verse 18, Matthew 12, 18. Quoting from Isaiah, Jesus says this, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Did you hear that? A bruised reed, Jesus will not break. And a smoldering wick, Jesus will not quench. In Isaiah's time, a reed was just a small piece of wood that would be used like for a pen or a flute. They're cheap, they're fragile, full of imperfections. And if a reed had any sort of imperfection, it would just be, it'd be chucked out. It'd be discarded and a new reed found. And the same with a smoldering wick. It's a, an imperfect wick would cause this unwanted smoke. It, it, it's a useless uh, wick. And, and due to the, a wick not costing hardly anything, you just snuff out the wick and replace it with another. But this is the gospel hope that we have in Jesus that you and I, that we are that bruised reed. We are that smoldering wick. We are all of us, the Bible says. We are idolaters. We are legalists. We are rebels. We are sinners. We are as imperfect as they come. And like this reed and like this wick, there's no real sense of goodness or value that comes within us. We're useless in our own right. But what does Jesus say through this prophecy that he will not do? 
A bruised reed, Jesus will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench. Do you see the contrast between the cruelty of the Pharisees' way of life and the kindness of Jesus? Jesus is not going to discard us like a bruised reed. He's not going to put us out like a bad wick of a candle. He delights to use a bruised reed like you and I. And it's at the cross where we get that victory. Jesus is our hope. So can I ask you this? Where does your salvation confidence come from? Where does your salvation, confidence, your peace, your rest, where does that come from? Does it come from your own efforts, your own striving? Or does it come from the finished provision of Jesus at the cross? Have you found and experienced the rest of Jesus' finished provision that you're, you don't have to toil no longer? You do not have to strive anymore. You don't have to labor under the weight of all your rules that maybe you've established to secure some sense of rest and peace in your life. Stop trying to come to Jesus fixed up. You can't do it. Jesus said to us in the preceding passage in chapter 11, he said, Jesus said, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, if you're joining us this morning and you've not placed your trust in Jesus, come to the cross of Christ because it's only in him that you will find rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this passage. Oh, we thank you for your finished work on the cross. That though try all the time, at least in my own heart, I know I try to prove that I'm worthy of your love. Lord, that you proved it all at the cross. Lord, help myself, help us as a church, Help our community to find the rest and peace and provision, the perfect provision that comes through your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to have soft ears as we parse out what does this look like in our life and how we come and approach you. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of all mercy, justice, and love. It's your name we trust. Amen.